Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be able to make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, tell it like it is. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Bang is dead. Not because they changed the darn names, ruined the acronym. They did that years ago. Fang is dead because it's becoming less and less relevant and useful to the future direction of the market. On a day where the market came in soft, the Dow slipping 261 points, S&P losing 1.30%, and the Nasdaq tumbling 1.96%, it's time to ponder the demise of something we created on mad money. A funny nickname for stocks that were hot a decade ago. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Both Facebook and Google changed their names to emphasize that they're now much larger, more sprawling businesses than they were once. Even though neither name has any pull or any interest, let alone any gravitas, I wish they just go back to the original name. So do you. Because the new ones never seem to catch one, right? That doesn't make any sense. We know what Google does. What the heck is Alphabet? We use Facebook. We don't frequent the metaverse. Sorry. Plus, the acronym didn't anticipate the ascendance of Apple or Tesla or Microsoft. Hence, that late expansion to Fang and then Fang plus M. I mean, come on, let's just retire the whole she-bang, please. This week, we get earnings from Meta, Amazon, Alphabet, and Apple. And I am not saying it's one big yawn. But other than Apple, these companies have made themselves irrelevant thanks to their own lack of predictability, verging on contempt for the process of reporting. They know nothing! Meta has been uncommunicative pretty much from the get-go, and we really have no idea how they're doing. We're just trying to figure out if Mark Zuckerberg is working in the metaverse, if he's fucking on Instagram, maybe he's doing a Reels, the TikTok competitor. I don't know. The good news is that Meta stock has come down to levels where I think the stock's incredibly cheap. If they were simply to spin off WhatsApp, the value proposition would be obvious to everybody, but it's soared since 85, so I can't pound the table. The main reason to own it is the breakup value, because it's a black box that's currently valued at $386 billion, and that's too little. Amazon's all about how many people are willing to fire. If they fire a lot, then the stock soars. If they don't, the stock goes down. Because e-commerce as a percentage of retail sales went from 16% to 24% at the peak of the pandemic, and now fallen back to 22%, okay? Well, Amazon has barely done any firing or consolidating. That is ill-advised. 
By the way, I don't even think it matters how much they're making at Amazon Web Services because unlike Microsoft, I bet they aren't even going to tell you explicitly. They might give us a read on advertising. Maybe they don't. I hope that they do. Maybe they don't. Does Amazon deserve to be worth a trillion bucks? Yes, if it lays off a lot of people. No, if it doesn't. What a fulcrum. Netflix. Well, look, it's only a $157 billion company. It didn't keep pace. This is the only fad component that's really thriving right now, though. But it's too small to matter. They put out a forecast, which is their internal forecast. Thank you. They beat it. Stock goes higher. They don't beat it. Stock goes lower. And whether they can beat it comes down to the quality of their content slate, like any other film or TV studio. And you can figure that out. Netflix isn't special anymore. Alphabet's harder. Like Meta, they offer you no easy way to understand the business. They have all sorts of healthcare operations and AI, self-driving cars, all seem to produce nothing of note except uh, Fitbit. And they bought that one for a song, but now it's probably worth half a song. I'm hoping to see a Waymo when I get to Arizona for the Super Bowl. Hey, maybe I can hail one. Waymo! Maybe I can't. Alphabet, in short, is really a total mishmash. Hey, ben, there's a name better than Alphabet. Mishmash.com. So is Alphabet worth $1.2 trillion? Well, look at the stock sales at only 19 times earnings. Got a huge cash position. Own it for the charitable trust, although we're not enthusiastic about the stock at the moment. Because we lack, it lacks the transparency that we like as, a, as stock pickers. But we know it's too cheap. Not that great a reason, not that bad a reason. The magic is lost, though, as it's lost with Meta. Because these turned out to be largely advertising-based businesses. And right now, advertising is awful. That's what clients stop spending on in a slowdown. And advertising recession is a terrible thing to waste. This is an emperor has no clothes situation. I think they'd be better just acknowledging that they're sartorially challenged and throwing on some clothes. Problem is they seem content playing pretend and they behave with contempt toward the reporting process. That's what annoys me. Doesn't make them expensive. It's just difficult, too difficult. In short, I believe FANG has become worthless as a name, an acronym, an amalgam because of sheer ennui. Nobody cares anymore, or should they? Because you can't figure out anything. Why don't companies... What we don't want companies. We don't want companies that are contemptuous of the process. We're tired of companies that won't at least admit that there's a game going on. I certainly don't blame them for wanting to be opaque. Who wants to answer to anyone, right? Hey, look, if you're the head coach of a football team, do you want to answer to fans, the season ticket holders, to the constituency that pays millions of dollars for a seat of a stadium? No, of course not. I think these companies give you plenty of details and good stats, but it's a take it or leave it process. And they're public. NFL teams are private. They still act like Wall Street's willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe of a private company, but that hasn't been true for a while now. Hence the huge frustration, the erratic nature of, what, of which they trade. Benefit doubt? That's totally vanished. All right, now, just so you know that, it's not, that not everyone's in contempt, let's talk about the biggest and the best. Let's compare them to Apple, which reports on Thursday. And wasn't an original fact. Apple's a remarkable company. It tells you a great deal about how it's doing allowing you to make informed decisions about whether to buy it or sell it. With Apple, you can figure out how many phones are in play, how many people re-up when their contract's up, how much that customer may be worth because of intense customer satisfaction. We have nothing like that for Meta or Alphabet or Amazon, let alone a dividend and a buyback. Apple's got a real price earnings multiple right now, selling for 23 times earnings, which is a little less than consumer packaged goods companies that make bleach or toothpaste. I think that's an absurdity. I don't know about you, which is why I always tell you to own the stock, not trade it, even as I think this quarter could be light thanks to the Chinese weakness from the COVID outbreak. Ah, you say... Meta and Alpha trade have lower multiples. Unfortunately, their multiples are a lot less meaningful than Apple's because we have no less insight into whether or not they can make the estimates. Now, I'm not saying that these companies are unimportant. They're too big to be ignored. What I'm saying is that Fang has worn out its welcome. 
You have to make a decision about their worth as enterprises, not based on earnings, but on what you kind of think about the zeitgeist of the moment. For example, I happen to think that if Alphabet or Meta were broken up, they become more transparent and easier to understand, which would translate into higher valuations. But don't ask me how they're going to do when they report this Thursday, because no one has any idea except maybe at the most upper echelon, and they say nothing, nothing at all to anyone. That's one of the reasons why this market has driven back to the banks, the cyclists, retailers, aerospace, transports, and healthcare. There are objective ways to compare and contrast those old-fashioned companies. They don't just issue new shares willy-nilly. They, willy-nilly, they pay their people with cash on the barrelhead. They play the game. They like playing regular dividends. They buy back stock. They recognize their maturity. They understand there's a process that all companies should go through. Of course, you could say, no, Jim, Warren Buffett doesn't play the game. Sure. But he's sui generis. He's never claimed Berkshire Hathaway was anything other than a curious amalgam of businesses run via a holding company and you either like them or not. And that's what most of the fang names turned out to be, too. Except unlike Berkshire Hathaway, they aren't run by Warren Buffett. Here's the bottom line. Buffett can get away with a lack of transparency because he's got an incredibly, extremely long track record. A a few years ago, Fang could get away with it, too. But not anymore. The magic is gone. They got to play by the rules. All that's left right now is skepticism. Let's take calls. Let's go to Steve in North Carolina. Steve. Hey, Jim. I am an investing club member. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. And and been doing some homework, as you suggest. Perfect. So a couple of weeks ago, you were using certain metrics to narrow down uh, a list of five stocks to recommend. This one didn't make the final cut, but was on the board just before the trim to the final five. Indeed. The company has a a P.E. of 10 and a 3% yield. What are your thoughts on NetApp. Yeah, there were a lot of companies that didn't make that. It was a very kind of, in the end, a subjective list. Uh, NetApp, we had mixed feelings on. Uh, Curian's doing a good job, as we mentioned last week, as CEO. does have a good yield, but we couldn't figure out what the catalyst would be to buy it. We had no catalyst. Uh, so, Steve, I think patience is warranted if there's a situation with no catalyst. All right, let's go to Richard in Maryland, please. Richard. Yeah, hi, Jim. Uh, Long time, second time, and thank you in advance for your help with my question. In February 2020, you said positive things about Amerco, a well-integrated multi-service company, then the name of the parent company of U-Haul. I checked it out and bought some shares for my IRA. My net gain after selling some shares on the way up is now 135%. Thank you. The past... Nice. This past... This past November, the stock split 10 for 1, and they distributed the new shares as non-voting tracking stock. The tracking B shares pay a de minimis $0.04 per share dividend. Uh, So I'm curious what you think. I've got these two sets of shares. Which one should I consolidate into? It, does it matter to you? I mean, uh, these B shares. Uh, you know what? Which are- I know that this just happened. I saw them ring the morning bell. And before I just cuff it and say I think you ought to do A or B, I have to do more work. Because when I saw it, I realized I should have brought the stuff home. I said, oh, look at you all ringing the bell. And I didn't do the work. A lot of things happen right now. I apologize. I will get on it and come back to you. All right. The magic of Fang is gone. All that's left is skepticism, opaque, lack of transparency. But they're not Warren Buffett. Or Man Money Tonight, 
It's been a strong start of the year for the market, but there has been a notable resurgence in the kind of stocks that we might call speculative, some might call too risky. So is it time to change up your plan and add a little speculation to your portfolio? I'll give you my take. Then did the market really bottom a few months ago, or could we just say we're in for a rude awakening someday soon? I'm going off charts to find it. And then, could Prologis be the right week for your portfolio? I'm surveying a great company with a terrific CEO, so stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. As we come to the end of January, we've seen something remarkable. The incredible outperformance of all things speculative, whether we're talking SPACs, recent IPOs, cloud software stocks, or even crypto. Nearly all the worst performing groups from last year have become the biggest winners of 2023, even as I've warned you away from them and recommended more mature companies with real earnings, real dividends, and relatively cheap stocks. And you know what? I'm not backing away from my view. Despite the recent gains, I'm sticking by my guns. I think Wall Street's gotten a little too speculative here. 
Why? Okay, you need to know why the riskiest stocks have been so strong this month. Bunch of reasons. First, at the end of the year, the worst performers get hammered by tax loss selling. You offset your winners as money managers sell them in order to get more favorable tax bills. Then they buy them back in January. For example, let's take the stock of Tesla. It was down 37% last month, and now it's up 35% this month. Some of that's from the fundamentals, but it's magnified by last month's tax loss selling and this month's repurchasing season. Second, and more important, Wall Street's now a lot less worried about the Federal Reserve thanks to a series of cooler than expected data points that show we're making real progress in the fight against inflation. We've also gotten much weaker manufacturing and retail spending numbers. Put it all together, and there is a widespread sense the Fed's win the war against inflation. I think they are to some degree. And the rapid rate hikes are also having a negative impact on the economy. I think they are to some degree. If that's the case, then it's reasonable to assume that the Fed will back off even further with its tightening efforts. And if the Fed stops hitting the brakes on the economy so aggressively, well, then Wall Street Playbook says it's safe to buy all the stocks that have been crushed by the rate hikes. Remember, everything speculative gets killed in a tightening cycle because these are all stocks that trade on their future earnings many years down the road. When inflation's rampant and the Fed keeps raising rates, those future earnings are suddenly worth a lot less money. But once people convince themselves that the Fed might start cutting interest rates for the end of the year, which is what the Fed Fund Futures Market is now predicting, then owning speculative stocks becomes a lot less dangerous. And that's what's going on. They're just jumping the gun here. They expect a conclusion and then they expect a cut. It's crazy. That's how bullish they are. At the same time, if you think the Fed might ease up because we're headed for a hard landing, a much weaker economy, that's another reason why money managers would rotate out of the traditional cyclical stocks you'd find in the Dow Jones Industrial Average and back to the more speculative tech names that dominate the Nasdaq. These speculative stocks are all about the long haul. If you own something for the future five years down the road, you're a lot less worried about near-term headwinds from a slower economy. That's ARC-like investing, right, Kathy Wood? So that's what happens this month. Between people reversing their moves from December, the tax loss selling season, and the negative economic data that's convinced them that the Fed will go easier on us, the whole speculative edifice has made a gigantic comeback. There's only one problem. I'm not buying it. I don't think the Federal Reserve is done bringing the pain. I don't think they're ready to declare victory in the war against inflation. And I'd be surprised, very surprised, if they start cutting rates before the end of the year. Sure, we've gotten a bunch of softer macroeconomic data points earlier this month. But you know what? We've also gotten some hotter-than-expected numbers more recently. Last week, we got the preliminary S&P Global Purchasing Managers Index data for January, which was stronger than anticipated. The fourth quarter GDP reading last Thursday was terrific, up 2.9%. Wall Street was only looking for 2.6%. There are still labor shortages across the bulk of the economy. Lots of companies outside of tech are hiring. What's the problem with a more robust economy? Nothing if you're a regular person, but it's bad news for the highly speculative stocks. And it's bad news in two ways. First, if the Fed's willing to slow down the pace of its rate hikes and we get a soft landing, then that means it's safe to own the economically sensitive stocks, the ones that I've been saying to buy, the kind you might find in the mighty Dow more than the NASDAQ. By, compar- by comparison, buying a speculative cohort is st- uh, harder to justify when the cyclists look like they're poised to put up much better than expected numbers versus last year. More importantly, though, where are people getting this idea that the Fed's finished? I think people buying the SPACs or the cloud software plays, the enterprise software, are getting a little off size with respect to the Fed's moves. While inflation cooled down somewhat, we're still a long way from where j wants us to be. And some of the more recent economic data, like the GDP number, that could empower the hawks in the Fed who want to keep raising rates indefinitely and consistently. And forget the macro data. The Fed's trying to kill inflation. But in recent weeks, commodity inflation has been rising from its grave. 
Lumber prices up 38% year to date. Some of the metals have run, had big ones, copper, Dr. Copper, so important for economic growth, up 10% now at the highest level since last June. While natural gas keeps getting crushed by the warm weather, oil's moved up several uh, points in its, from its lows earlier this month. Commodities are important tell. They were the first sign that inflation might soon be peaking last summer. The fact that they've rebounded hard now is not a good sign. Maybe the Fed will have to tighten more than we thought in order to drive a stake through the heart of inflation, particularly the most pernicious kind, which is wage inflation. And that's a battle that the Fed fears losing. And they fear that more than anything. <coughs> Excuse me. There have been no signs that wage inflation is cooling. That's the main reason why the Fed is continuing to tighten. Remember, keep that in front of you. Wage inflation is the problem. Now, I don't think the Fed is going to be super aggressive. I'm not in that camp. I expect a 25 basis point rate hike this week, just like everybody else. Nothing more than that. But I do fear that inflation is on the rebound. There are plenty of ways that they could be more hawkish than expected, maybe in the text, maybe in the press conference. Right now, Wall Street's only anticipating one more rate hike after we get this week. Maybe they'll do just that. They could also simply leave rates higher for longer, though. Remember, the future market is forecasting rate cuts before the end of the year. Any of that would make things hard for the speculative cohort. And look, I could go on and on. We've already highlighted charts from legendary Larry Williams, who thinks the tech-heavy Nasdaq 100 is headed for a major rough patch. He's great at these contrarian calls. Remember what he likes. The workhorses, the sickles, not the show horses, which the high, you know, these ridiculously overvalued NASDAQ names, and, of course, some of the crypto and all the rest of that. Plus, let's not forget that most of these spec names haven't reported earnings yet. Plug Power, a hydrogen energy play, that was up 32% for the year as of last Wednesday. Then they announced a huge shortfall for the fourth quarter. The stock got obliterated. That might be the template for all the big money losers in your portfolio. Even after a day where speculative stocks got pounded, it's not too late to sell. It's very dangerous to own stocks that have run up dramatically going into earnings season, and that goes double for anything super speculative that could really fall flat on its face. Don't be afraid to take these kinds of stocks off the table. I'm really urging you to make sales right now of the stuff that is junk that's run up along with the good ones. You know what's junk. You know what in your portfolio shouldn't be going up because they're not doing well. Bottom line, don't get ahead of yourself with the Federal Reserve. The speculative stocks have made a remarkable comeback this past month. But J-Pal can put an end to that in a heartbeat on Wednesday just by hitting us with a couple of hawkish sentences. That's why I wanted to stick with the companies that make real things or provide real services at a profit and have you sell, sell, sell. This speculative stock that you've just made real good money on because it's time to go. Bad Money is back after the break. Coming up, are we beset by bears or bolstered by bulls? The market's near future could be decided this week. Find out what to watch for next. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Here's a question I thought everyone was asking about. Did the market really bottom a few months ago? Or is this whole recent rally nothing more than a dream? With a rude awakening coming in the not-too-distant future that started today. Maybe when we hear from the Fed later this week, that's the big question right now. Are we still in a bear market or have the broader averages transitioned to bull mode? At times like this, you know what you got to do? You got to check your emotions. Take them out of the equation. Assess the situation from a more quantitative perspective. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Mark Sebastian. Oh, Mark's a brilliant technician. He's the founder of OptionPit.com, also writes for RealMoney.com. I've been following his stuff for more than a decade. We've got to find out and get a better read of the action because he's our resident volatility expert. And volatility could be the key to understanding this moment. And I like this as a way to, let's just say, to put it all in perspective. So first, take a look at the daily chart of the S&P 500. This is simple enough. Okay? You can see very clearly that we made an important low in October. That's pretty clear, right? But from a te- technical perspective, a new low doesn't necessarily mean anything. For charters, though, the real change came more recently when the S&P 500 broke out above its downward sloping downtrend. Boom, right here, right? Sebastian points out that from the S&P's peak in January of last year to the lower high on March 29th to the next lower high in mid-August to still one more lower high in December, uh, the index just couldn't break through the ceiling of resistance. It just kept failing. failing. We've seen that several times from several charts. Every time we rally, we get this level, and then the market will come right back down. It happened again a couple weeks ago on the 17th, too. But a few days later, on the 23rd, the S&P finally did break out above its this level. And we've stayed above it for six straight sessions, which makes people pretty excited, including me, as long as it's broad. See, this chart has broken the negative pattern that's held us down for more than a year. So how meaningful is this breakout? As Sebastian sees it, we need to look at the CBOE volatility index, the VIX for short, in comparison to the S&P, because this gives you a better read on the underlying level of fear and trepidation on Wall Street. Normally, the VIX and the S&P go in opposite directions, right? Lower stock prices equals higher fear, so that's what you'd expect. But at pivotal moments, they'll move in the same direction, signaling that a trend is about to change, because a rally with rising fear is not going to last and a sell-off with declining fear will be equally short-lived. Makes sense? Check out the daily action in the S&P and the VIX going back to late 2021. All right, now this is really instructive. Sebastian notes that the two-year low for the VIX came on October 21st, and we've highlighted that, of 2021, right when the market was starting to crest. You know, right there, okay? About a month before the Fed declared war on inflation and the bears started going on a rampage. After that October 2021 low, the VIX spent the next two and a half months rallying like crazy. Even when the S&P was rising, bad sign for any move higher, right? Well, sure enough, the market peaked. The market marked the peak for the whole market. So, this was that foreshadowed, and then nothing but down. Then after the peak, the VIX and the S&P go back to the normal relationship with the VIX soaring while the S&P plummets. Eventually, the volatility index peaked in early March of last year, but that wasn't the bottom for the stock market, not even close. Why rehash last year's action? Because Sebastian wants you to notice what happened to peak volatility every time the S&P made a new low during the bear market. Now, take a look at this next chart of the VIX and the S&P from last February through the present moment. So now we're talking about right now, okay? See, every time the S&P made a new low, during this period, Sebastian notes the VIX actually peaked at a lower level. 
Okay. At the same time, let's look at the next chart. Just about every lower high for the S&P saw a lower low for the VIX. Okay. So what was the, what was going on here? How can the market be hitting new highs while the fear gauge seems to show that Wall Street's getting progressively less afraid? Well, here's what the, where the volatility index can throw people off. Even though the VIX is really a way to measure the perceived future volatility of the S&P 500, it also does a very good job measuring the overall level of fright in the stock market. We call it the fear gauge for good reason. But here's how Sebastian sees it. What's the scariest part of a horror movie? It's not the actual axe murdering, right? It's the scene right before when the suspense is building and you're just waiting for the killer to jump out of the closet. Then bam! To Sebastian, the bulk of last year was the axe murdering. The most terrifying part, the jump scare, happened in the first quarter of last year. He also points out, if you take a look at this next chart, another thing. Over the last year, the new lows in the volatility index have been bought, and the S&P has almost immediately sold off hard. Some of the VIX pops have been shorter, like we saw last May or in December. Others have been longer, like the pop we saw in August that accurately predicted the oncoming obliteration of the S&P 500. Look at this. Boom. Now, let's zoom in on the action, the S&P and the VIX over the last month so we can talk about the current moment. Sebastian really doesn't like what he sees here. Back on the 13th, the volatility index made a new low. Okay. Since then, the S&P has continued to rally. The S&P's in blue. You see that? Got the S&P. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's continuing to rally. This, the black line says. Uh, Remember, when these two lines move in the same direction, it usually means you can't trust the action in this, in the S&P. It's not going to be working. Because while the market's rising, the fear is rising too. So you've got both of these, S&P going up and fear going up. Sebastian thinks we're absolutely going to see a retest of the new floor of support at the 200-day moving average. If that floor doesn't hold, he wouldn't be surprised to see the S&P plunging to a new low around 3,400. So if that doesn't hold, he thinks we're going much lower. This is assuming something goes very wrong this week, maybe a much harsher than expected Fed meeting. Right now, Sebastian isn't sure whether the bottom from last October will hold. If the S&P can bounce off the floor created by the 200-day moving average, which is that's the purple one, if it bounces here, or even if it can just stay above the 3,800 line, which is right here, uh, then rally for a couple of days, well, then, you know what, maybe we're going to be okay. Take that as a sign that rallies for real. However, if that floor doesn't hold, he could easily see the market revisiting its fall lows. If that happens, the volatility index makes a lower high rather than a higher one, Sebastian would be a buyer because he suspects that would be the bottom. Remember, it's got, if it shoots up, you're going to go lower. But the bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Mark Sebastian suggest that we're approaching a decisive moment here. If the S&P 500 can avoid a major decline this week, he's feeling optimistic about the future. On the other hand, if it gets clobbered, he sees a heck of a lot more downside. So watch the averages, watch the volatility index to see if the action is telling the truth. I'm feeling more sanguine than he is, but we'll have a much clearer picture in a couple of days. And now you know about the how the VIX interchanges with the S&P and is not signaling good things, even as I think the S&P is, getting, is broadening out. And I am in a better, more, I'd say, uh, bullish fashion. Let's go to Brittany in California. Brittany. Hey, Jim. I just wanted to say thank you for what you do for all us home gamers. You oh, for thank my you, Brittany. down payment when I was 26 in the Great wow. Recession. See, now, that um, I, I just love to hear, because then I can tell Lisa, my wife, see, I am helping people, which is what we're always trying to figure out. Thank you very much. How can I help? 
My stock is Northrop Grumman. So I bought this at 490, seeing it getting pulling it back to the bottom of its trading range. And then a small position, then I saw it get hit by all the downgrades. And I'm like, did I not do enough research on this stock? Because I'm looking at Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, and they've got a peg of half of what Northrop does. So I'm like, do I stick with my guns and go in at 430 right now and double down and go in more at 400? Or do I go with Raytheon or Lockheed that give more? You know what? It's a great question. Uh, I happen to be uh, a huge fan of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. But because Northrop Grumman has fallen so much, I think it jumps that whole queue and becomes the, the one you should be buying. So, Brittany, I think you're in great shape, and I would actually buy more tomorrow. And thank you for the kind words. It means a great deal to me, as did all the kind people who, who told me this weekend that they enjoy what we do on the show. Thank you. Tonight's Charters please we are at a crossroads. If the S&P 500 can avoid a major decline this week, then he gets optimistic. If not, more downside. Very difficult. Crux moment. There's much more made money yet, including my exclusive with ProLogis. After putting a top and bottom line beat a couple of weeks ago, I'm digging deeper into the story to see what was behind the quarter strength with the CEO. Then it's been two years since the apes entered the market. Laser focused on GameStop and AMC. So what's the real takeaway about what happened? I have a very tough look at what happened. And I'm going to give you my take. And of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Okay. Is it finally safe to circle back to Prologis? That's a real estate investment trust. owns all sorts of warehouses, logistics facilities. For years, this was indeed one of my favorite stocks. Look over the last year, it rolled over as major e-commerce players like Amazon confessed that maybe they'd overinvested in their infrastructure. I never believed the logistics slowdown would hit Prologis that badly because they own some of the best placed assets in the industry. They keep putting up great numbers. Like the rest of the market, though, the stock seemed to have bottomed in mid-October. Since then, Prologis has rebounded from $98 to $127 and change. Didn't hurt that they reported another excellent quarter just a couple weeks ago. Even though the full-year forecast was mixed, as we got to talk about that, nobody seemed to mind because the stock had already come down so dramatically from its highs. Can the rebound continue? Let's check in with Hamid Mogadam. He is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Prologis to get a better read of the situation. Mr. Mogadam, welcome back to Man Money. Great to see you again, Jim. How are okay. you? Oh, great. Oh, great. How are you? Uh, I am not as good as you are after that game last night. Oh, but, I had uh, a feeling you were going to go there, so <laughs> I did the unthinkable of TV by asking how you're doing so I could get, yes, the Eagles look great. Anyway, um, I, you had a fantastic quarter. And, and, but then you, you gave what I thought was softer guidance than I, I expected, given the fact you're like 98% occupancy. I mean, I think you could have been 101. So I really got to understand what distinguished between macro concerns and what how Prologis is really doing. Well, there's definitely a disconnect between macro and our business. And the explanation for that is the level of inventories. Uh, you know, retailers and other people have been running to catch up with the need for inventories, and they're still not there because of all the supply chain disruptions. Um, they they didn't get the goods that they needed at the right time, so they had the wrong uh, goods at the time that they needed the sales, and they had to discount, and everything was a mess. As that um, supply chain normalizes, 
uh, levels of inventory have to go up to a, a more normal level and two, uh, to account for resilience in case something bad happens in the future. So we, th we figure inventories have rebounded maybe two thirds of the ways uh, from their trough, but there's another third to go. We're about 10, 11% higher than we were pre-COVID uh, in terms of inventories, uh, sorry, 10, 11% higher than the bottom of the COVID period. And we think there's uh, probably another seven or 8% to go. So that ultimately drives demand for our product. And it's really, really hard to build new warehouses in uh, places that people want them. So the combination of high demand and tight supply gives us a lot of pricing power and, and high occupancy. Well, should we be thinking that maybe uh, that e-commerce companies are going to build that inventory or is it also uh, brick and mortar? Well, they all are. Uh, and the brick and mortar people are uh, have been a little bit behind the eight ball. Uh, you know, COVID proved that they needed a distribution strategy for their online division. Everybody's going omni-channel. So they, while Amazon has clearly slowed down because they really stepped on the gas in uh, 2020 and 2021, now they're digesting that. All the other guys are running to catch up with them. So demand, if anything, has diversified. Now, um, you know, is demand quite as crazy as it was a year ago? No, it's a little bit off of that. Right. But during a 10, 20, 30 year cycle, I would tell you demand is in the top five percentile uh, of my career, for sure. Uh, I think that's very important because I remember uh, during the uh, absolute bottom 2007, 2008, your business really hung on and most people's businesses didn't because that's just the nature of how you guys do. I was concerned, though, by there's a moment in your call where you say, my sense is that customers don't have quite as much FOMO, fear of missing out, as they did before. Um, are the customers more complacent than they should be and don't realize they should be uh, using Prologis enough? No, I think that's going uh, too far. I think when there were uh, 10 or 12 people bidding for every piece of space that came up, uh, people were almost trained to to grab the space and then worry about whether they really needed it and the price and the economics. Now they have a little bit more time to think about that. And uh, I would still say for each uh, piece of space that comes up, we have more people looking at it than we do during normal part of the cycle. It's just not going to stay at that crazy level that it was a year ago. And frankly, Amazon was leasing pretty much everything right. from under them right. during that period of time. Right. And that's not quite there. But it's a very healthy market. And believe me, I'd be the first one to point out if there were any cracks in the story because of credibility reasons and the like. Absolutely. And we just don't see it. Now, how about you know? Duke? How's, that, how's the acquisition? We're really pleased with that. We got all the cost synergies immediately, and I would say we're seven, eight percent ahead of where we thought we would be in terms of uh, lease renewals and activity in that portfolio. So I'm feeling really good about that. Now, if you, one of the things that I am concerned about uh, when I look at what Amazon is doing, it makes me nervous that the other guys may say, you know what, if Amazon's not doing well, we should not invest as much. You're saying that they that they they still want to even if they see Amazon slowing down? Yeah, so, um, you know, I can almost or anyone can look at specific examples 
and say, okay, this is really bad news. I won't name names, but there are clearly sure. some retailers that are that are not doing well. And uh, if you want to look at those, but you might conclude that the the market is uh, very weak. That's not the case. Uh, we we lease over a million square feet a day. Wow. Just wrap your head around that one. A million square feet per day. So we're seeing uh, customers from all walks of life and overall level of demand, if I were going to characterize it, if one to 10 is the range, we're at sort of nine to nine and a half. We're not 12 like we used to be right. last year, but it's very well, look, that 12 is unsustainable. We almost have to sell your stock when it's when it's uh, 12. Look, I, I think things sound very good. You've, and by the way, on your credibility issue, you've been 100 percent. And I absolutely appreciate what you say. And I know that if it was not going well, you'd say it's a rough patch. And you're not saying that. And that's very important to us. So I want to thank you, Hamid Mogadam. He is the co-founder, chairman, CEO of Prologis and a real straight shooter. Hamid, great to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you as well. Take care. Mid money's back in. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy, time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Tom in Tennessee. Tom. Uh, Jim Kramer. First time. Yo, call. Tom. Excellent. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Ah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you also for the recognition of us veterans. Oh, absolutely, sir. Absolutely. Jim, thank you. And to the, all of you. Thank you. The best compliment I can give you is I have read every book. I'm a charter member of the club. Yes. True true story here. With the help of the DVR and iPhone, I have watched every episode since day one. True story. You are true cadre, Tom. Thank you. Thank you very Uh, much. Thank you for serving and thank you for that. You got my attention when you left the Cudlow and Kramer. <laughs> I go way back. Larry's good guy. Larry's good guy. Absolutely. How can I help? Hey, listen, uh, feeling good about regional banks. You have spotlighted Huntington Bank and others in the past. Regions Financial, great yield, uh, good PE ratio. Good- it's an excellent stock. I like Regions Financial very much. And, Tom, I think it's a terrific buy even at these levels. Don't forget Wells Fargo, which is even cheaper and going higher. Five years ago, it peaked at 62. It can go higher. Stuart in New York. Stuart. Hello, Mr. Jim. How yeah. are you? I am good. How about you? Oh, great. The metals are soaring like your eagles, and I got a good one for you called Valet. Well, you know what? Valet's time may be here. Now, Yevchkin, if it were in any other country... This stock will be soaring if it's the United States. But it is in Latin America, and people right now just think that there's just no way that anything good can happen. But I am going to bless it for a trade. Why? Because copper is starting to fly, which means valet can fly. It's had a nice move off the bottom, but it can still go higher. The thing is a rocket ship. Let's go to Rick in Pennsylvania. Rick. Hey, what's up, Jim? Congratulations on your Eagles, buddy. Thank you, partner. Thank you very much. 
Hey, um, I'm looking at a, at a stock here, Lumen, L-U-M-N. They got a higher cash flow than their market cap. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, they got rid of the dividend. I, I actually don't trust Lumen. I think Lumen is a dangerous stock even down here, so I've got to try to keep you out of it. But thank you for the comments about the Eagles. Go Howie Roseman, go Birds, go Nick Sirianni. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, good riddance to bad monkey business? How the fringes made merry on meme stocks, then squandered their edge. Next. Welcome to Mad Money 101! Professor Kramer has entered the building! Class is in session! Kramer's climbing back up the ivory tower to help you achieve your financial dreams. The Mad Money Back to School Tour It's a special Mad Money from the University of Miami. Thursday, February 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern. Two years ago, the apes descended upon our markets. They did everything they could to destroy the hedge funds who overstayed their welcome in betting against GameStop or AMC. Since then, other than endless potty mouth griping in my Twitter file, they barely have a pulse. Looking back, all I can say is good riddance to the lunatic fringe and the financial newlists who somehow thought they were doing something admirable. There was nothing admirable at all. Sure, you could say that they busted the short sellers, but the shorts always come back if the situation is a looming financial nightmare. You could say that their coordinated buying allowed GameStop and AMC to sell stock, which possibly kept them from going under. But what you can't say is that anything was accomplished, other than to bring in some individuals who serve spite for breakfast and despise anyone in the, who, in their minds, represents Wall Street. Now, other than extremely low dollar amount stocks, they play no substantive role whatsoever. There was an odd confluence at the time the self-professed apes pushed up GameStop and AMC. The first directed some outfit called Melvin Capital. The second directed the whole world. These guys seem to thrive on the gamification of investing as represented by the Robinhood app. So did the shorts, causing immense pain for Robinhood, which came close to a forced sale. Congress held hearings, which of course mounted to nothing because there was really nothing as nihilism is not an movement, it's not an event, it's not an ethos. At the time, I was unfortunately having kind of a rough back operation, couldn't have a cyst that busted open my spinal cord, with a four-hour operation two days before GameStop peaked at 120 and changed. That's the split-adjusted price. It's now at 121 bucks. I was well enough to watch television, so I called him from my hospital bed when it was doing that soaring thing and urged everyone to sell. I said it multiple times. I said the company's worth nowhere near what GameStop stock was selling for. I said bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs, well, guess what? They get slaughtered. And GameStop after that run was pure pig behavior. I thought I was offering some common sense and I'd be thanked. It was the top. But common sense was considered tired. The apes wrote it off as an outdated part of the Wall Street dogma. At that moment, the squeeze was so horrendous that the stock briefly traded to above 100 before the opening bell when I spoke. Ever since then, I've been vilified by these guys because I said sell, 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 to the point that I have someone else reading my, my mentions on Twitter to filter out the worst stuff. The old gang at Twitter did their best to help, but being a top 10 most hated character on Twitter, I was hard to help. Somehow more hated than Vladimir Putin some days? I mean, there's an accomplishment for you. Of course, this story isn't really about me. I'm just an example of how the meme stock cohort treated their supposed opposition with pure hatred and vile. 
Anyone who wanted an orderly market as opposed to the scam these hucksters were running became the enemy. So much money was lost sticking with GameStop and AMC if you got in on the way up and didn't get out. Hey, AMC roared from a dollar and change in early July, January 2021 to a high of 45 December 2021. 2021. Sell, 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 sell. Now it's back to five bucks. Though you also have one of those $2 ape shares as well. The best result is that both companies stayed afloat because of the, these clowns. Yeah, I, I, I should use clowns because of these uh, ill-informed investors, uh, ill-informed speculators. Because these clowns. I have no doubt AMC would have gone under. As for GameStop, we're still waiting for something. But at least now they have enough cash to play on. Here's what's sad. These new people got in. They thought it was an us versus them situation, and it wasn't. They were rebels without a cause. They knew nothing about GameStop. They, knew not, they, they only knew there was a guy they followed to the end of the earth, uh, some guy named Ryan Cohen, who totally bagged him in bed bath. But that, he's a sainted warrior for GameStop shareholders. They've made great friends with Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, even though the joke's on them because he used their buy through some fantastic insider selling at a great price. In the end, here's the real takeaway. The apps could have been something. They could have been contenders. Instead, they're now sore losers who probably moved on to crypto, which will be their next financial charnel house. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. Promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.